Welcome to episode number 25 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. The Beretta Cast. Today's episode is not really philosophy, maybe, I guess maybe it's theology, not really political at all, and generally just a little bit different from the kind of thing that I usually do. I guess it represents some ideas that have been floating around in my mind for a little while now, so I've decided to give them expression here. This episode is called Stop Being a Christian and Start Being a Person. Now, that's intentionally provocative in the way that it's been titled, maybe even a little bit misleading, because I don't actually want people who are Christians to literally give up the Christian faith. I just want them to perhaps think again about what it is to be a Christian and also what it means for things to be Christian. Um, I'll be using the example of things. I'll be using music. I'll be using the example of scholarship as well. And then I'll uh, lastly turn to not things, but people. Now, I might quite unintentionally annoy some people in this episode. Now, sometimes I deliberately annoy people, but it's not intentional this time. I hope I don't. But if I do, then it's something that I can live with if I can successfully get this message across to just half the people who hear this. Let me, right at the beginning, take away any excuse you might have for misunderstanding the title or the message of this episode. I am, in fact, what is referred to as a Christian, and I hope you know that if you've been listening to my podcast for a while. I'm not at all ashamed of that. I hope you know that as well. And I wouldn't want it any other way. My main beliefs about God reflect those fundamental truths held by Christians over the centuries. My life, although very imperfectly at times, just ask my wife, is lived is a life lived in pursuit of obedience to Christ, and my fundamental commitments about the things that matter most are firmly grounded in a Christian worldview. Now, can you hear a but coming? Here it is. But I would rather that all of us, Christian and otherwise, would stop talking and thinking the way we do about what it is for an idea, a piece of art or music, a book, an activity, a scholarly endeavor, maybe even a person to be Christian. And I'm going to say that it's better to be involved in things that are good than things that are overtly Christian. And I'm going to say that it's better to be a good person than a Christian person. I'm going to say that we've chopped up our minds and our worlds into Christian and non-Christian bits and we've handicapped, I think, our testimony to the gospel in doing so. I think that we've needlessly alienated people. I think that we've made Christianity look stupid, sometimes, and we've probably missed out on a lot of what God has to offer in life by doing this. So let's stop painting in broad strokes and using generalities. Let's get into some specifics. Let's go. Example number one. I'm going to start with what I think should be, should be, pretty uncontroversial. I'm going to use the example of Christian versus non-Christian music. What I say in relation to this first example, music, 
is really a kind of snapshot of what I want to say more broadly about other examples. So it's good to start here because it's an easy way to get, get the ball rolling. So here's the first example. So let's jump up, turn around, raise our hands and praise the Christian rock music, or just Christian contemporary music in general. Once upon a time, and unfortunately still today in some circles, a lot of Christian mothers and fathers assumed that all rock music is bad or demonic, that it contained backwards messages from Satan, that it's a doorway to the occult, and a host of other fascinating things. We've largely left that kind of absurd paranoia behind, fortunately. In my teenage years in the early 90s, I was a big fan of the emerging Christian heavy metal scene, a scene that started in the late 70s and really started to pick up in the mid to late 80s. Overtly Christian lyrics geared towards evangelism or warnings about the dark side or something else. Distributed by Christian distribution companies, of course. Uh, Companies, by the way, that exclusively distributed such material and nothing else. Produced by producers who wouldn't touch any other kind of music. Contracted to record labels that don't carry any other type of artist. I can still remember when a Christian friend, not a specific Christian friend, but any Christian friend, would tell me about a new band they were listening to, and one of the first questions would be, are they a Christian band? And if they weren't, then that kind of counted as a reason not to listen to them. This is ghetto thinking, and I don't mean that in any cool gangster sense of that term. It sets up a really separate market of Christian music in its own corner of the world, apart from music markets in general. And I think it involves making a couple of big mistakes. Firstly, It involves lowering our musical standards. Now, why would I say that? Don't get me wrong. There was and is some really, really good overtly Christian music, more so now than ever before. But the fact is, whether any of us like admitting it or not, it usually involves accepting a lower standard of music and excusing it, or perhaps denying that it really is inferior, just because it's Christian music and we won't listen to that other stuff. That's the way it was for me sometimes in the uh, in the mid-90s when I was getting into the Christian metal scene. It kind of wasn't all that good sometimes, but I would listen to it because it was Christian music. This, in turn, enables and supports artists who, well, just aren't nearly as good as their marketing suggests, and in doing so, it may prevent even better artists from being heard. Now, I want to stress, I'm not at all saying that all Christian rock music back in the day or today is like that. I think that some of the early Bride albums, Striper, in spite of what some might say, some of the music from Blood Good Rares and a bunch of other music from way back when was really outstanding music, even by mainstream standards. But come on, have you you even heard the first Guardian album? I mean, didn't you notice that most of the songs on the California Metal compilation album sucked? Even today as I listen to Christian radio shows, fortunately not metal ones, Actually, the Christian heavy metal scene has really improved dramatically since the 80s. I find myself cringing at the corniness of both the music and the lyrics sometimes. I find myself thinking, if it weren't for the fact that this rubbish is overtly Christian and so it's got a safe niche market, it would never sell. Secondly, for the really good Christian artists out there, this ghetto mentality just robs them of exposure that could make them more successful. 
the pressure to fit some cheesy Christian mold and be more overt than any Christian would be in normal life without sounding like a freak is to effectively say to the world, stay away. We've got nothing to offer you. There's nothing to see here. Bands and artists that really are making it in the world are simply being themselves. They're not putting on a mask or trying to be as overt as possible. Bands like P.O.D., Blindside, Nora Jones, here in Dave Dobbin, uh, sorry, here in New Zealand, we've got Dave Dobbin, uh, Brooke Fraser, Stereogram, and plenty of others. But you might say, isn't that, just, isn't that just a compromise? This is what I used to hear in my teenage years from various places. Christian rock music is just a compromise, sticking good words together with an evil type of music. Now, fortunately, that's largely an attitude of the past, but am I now advocating that Christian musicians hide their faith in order to be more successful? No. And if you think that, and now I'm really getting to the major point of this episode, when it comes to music anyway, if you think that, then you need to seriously rethink what Christian faith is and change your approach to the world. This is my third point. This ghetto mentality fails to fully appreciate that God is a creator of the world and that it contains many good things that don't have a bumper sticker with Jesus saves printed on it. This is God's world. And the good things in the world, Christians have always taught and still do teach, the good things in the world glorify God. Look in the book of Psalms. He writes, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. That's not because the words praise God or anything like that are written across the sky. It's because the natural beauty of the night sky shows the handiwork of God. Elsewhere in the Psalms, the writer rejoices in the glory of God and the things that he has made, including the lion as it hunts its prey, which is provided by God. Now, you can be sure the lion didn't say grace. Or listen to this from the Apostle Paul in in the book of Philippians. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Okay, it doesn't say whatever is explicitly Christian, as though only such things can meet the criteria listed here. There are songs by Christian artists that simply fail to meet those criteria, and there are plenty of songs written by artists who are not Christians that do meet those criteria. Some Christian songs present a wrong message, and some so-called secular songs present the right message. I'm going to play just a couple of, of clips here which give examples of that. Here's the first one. A man walked up to me the other day. He was very educated. He had a lot of things to say. And he was also forward-thinking and so very up-to-date. And he wanted to teach me about pain. He said, how can you believe in the thing you've never seen? He said, how can you believe with all the evil that we have seen? He said, don't you? For those who don't know that song, that's a song called I Believe in God by a Christian band called Church of Rhythm. Reflect on what you've just heard. What? God is impossible. That's what he says. 
I believe in God. I believe in the impossible. And you believe in the impossible? You believe in things that cannot possibly exist? That is how you describe faith to an unbeliever with serious questions? Why not just tell him that Christianity is not for the thoughtful and that he needs to leave his brain at the door? No wonder that some non-Christians think we're daft. Okay, now for a so-called secular example. This is a band called Live. I'm sure you've heard of them, and the song is called Heaven. Now, that's a million times better. Did you hear what he said? That's thoroughly biblical. Read Romans chapter 1 and 2. The song says, I don't need no one to tell me about heaven. I can see my daughter. I don't need anyone to tell me about God and truth. I can see the sunset and I perceive. I'm paraphrasing now. Have a look through Romans 1 and 2. God's existence can be seen through the things that he has made. There is, just as Christian theologians have taught for centuries, a natural knowledge of God that is accessible to everyone via creation. Okay, back to a Christian example. Listen to this. This is one called Saturn by a band called Skillet. Okay, Saturn has a ring around it. Thanks. Actually, it's got seven rings, but you're on the right track. And listen to what follows. Saturn has a ring around it, but you can never see it with your eyes. Saturn has a ring around it. Many moons now still be. Okay, what are you talking about now? There's a planet called heaven? Are you a freaking Mormon? And it's got a ring around it. Well, just one or seven like Saturn. And what what the heck is this nonsense? Is there any sense in which this is really part of a Christian worldview? Not at all. Yeah, the fact that it's on a Christian radio station that uses the word heaven might might make you think otherwise, but no, it's not. Listen, here's another example, the final one I'm going to use from a secular band, Megadeth, uh, and the song is Symphony of Destruction. You take a mortal man and put him in control Watch him become a god Watch the 
I'd listen to that rather than the other artists we've heard just because it's better music. <laughs> but once again, this is right on. And what's more, I think it is part of a Christian worldview. If you give a fallen mortal man absolute power and look to him like a god, then just like the Pied Piper in the story, he'll lead you down a path to a dystopian nightmare. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Okay, so setting these examples aside just for now, you know, even if a musician, an artist, a songwriter isn't intentionally trying to construct a positive message about virtue or love or God or anything like that, maybe they're just telling a story, even that is edifying and glorifying to God. God gave people, not just those who would follow him, but people generally, the gift of creativity, and when they use it, they show the handiwork of God. Okay, if artists identify as Christians, then sure, go ahead and identify them as such. But stop thinking of music as automatically good and glorifying, glorifying to God if it's Christian, you know, overtly Christian, and not glorifying to God if it's not. Look at your CD collection or your MP3 collection and whatever you have. Completely strip away the labels Christian and secular and just ask, is it good? Does it glorify God in the proper, full sense, not just by including sentences that explicitly talk about him? Would I listen to it if I didn't know the religious stance of the artist? Is it good in the proper sense of the word? Is it good music? Okay, so I'm going to end the example of music and look at example number two, Christian versus non-Christian scholarship. Just as there exists a subgenre of music, Christian rock music, there also exists a subgenre of books, Christian scholarship, not just books, articles and you know seminars, presentations and all sorts of things like that. Now, wait a minute, you might think, where's he going with this? That's a good thing, isn't it? Christians and non-Christians have different beliefs and assumptions that they bring to their scholarship, right? So we have to keep them apart, don't we? Well, Christians and non-Christians will, I agree, in some cases diverge on their research projects, what it is they are interested in, Christians who are philosophers have a reason to be interested in things like the problem of evil, the defensibility of theologically grounded ethics, the place of religion in the public square, divine foreknowledge and human freedom, and a whole bunch of other things as well. So when it comes to subjects like philosophy of religion or theology, you're going to find that many of the people writing on the subject are themselves religious believers, and in the Western world many of them are Christians, although a number of them aren't, but sure, let's say most of them are. I'm not talking about sticking to reading Christian scholars in that sense as a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Doing so in that sense is kind of incidental. You read mostly Christian scholars because you're studying a subject in which many of the scholars are, in fact, Christians, and that's just how it is. I'm talking about the habit, intentional or not, of assuming that if a piece of scholarship is overtly Christian, then on that basis it should be regarded as more likely to be reliable. That's a really bad assumption to make. As with unhelpful approaches to the subculture of Christian rock music, like I said, that's an analogy for everything that I'm going to be talking about today because it really contains all the principles. Those negative consequences of this subculture can rear their heads here as well. Firstly, this approach lowers our standards. When we commit ourselves to absorbing Christian scholarship in principle because it is overtly Christian, that's, that's a really bad thing to do. It's written by someone in our club, so we're more lenient and less critical, lowering the bar, as it were. 
We often recognize when other people do this, when non-Christians regard scholarship in this way, reflect, for example, on the fact that among the online atheist community, if I can call it a community, more salivating and reveling has taken place because of the book by Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, than any other book in history. And let's face it, it's not a particularly well-kept secret that although the book is largely an attempt at philosophy, it's one of the worst pieces of philosophy concocted by a non-philosopher ever published. One that even overt atheists like genuine philosopher Michael Ruse are frankly embarrassed by. We realize when non-Christians praise a scholar or a piece of work just because they like its conclusions. You know, Dawkins and Hitchens say all the things that these fanatical atheists, not all atheists are fanatical, but these particular fanatical atheists want to hear. And so they say it's a wonderful piece of scholarship. I think if we're going to recognize when other people do that, we need to be equally hard on ourselves. It seems to me that when it comes to Christian scholars engaged in overtly Christian scholarship who support our ecclesiological, that is, our church affiliation, or our theological prejudices, a lot of Christians have a tendency towards a completely unacceptable partisanship, letting their heroes get away with outrageous academic atrocities that they would never let anybody else get away with. I'm not going to be able to mention examples without potentially offending some people I know. That's just how it is. A few times in the podcast and also in writing, both at my site, Beretta Online, and in publication, I've named a certain theologian, I won't name him here, in connection with his published arguments against a theological position that I hold, annihilationism. Like I say, I won't name him again, but I think that's a great example of what I mean. In an environment unlike his own, that is a seminary associated with his church, the works of his that I have referred to elsewhere and criticized would be laughed out of town as absurdly bad, partisan and hopelessly flawed scholarship. And yet, among those deeply devoted to the conclusions that he advances, his work is ranked as top-notch, which is just shocking to me. It's a Christian version of the devotion to Richard Dawkins and his rants against the delusion that is religion. That's what happens when Christian readers become experts in a subject only in as much as they become familiar with the writings of readers from their theological camp. I listened to a debate, or at least part of, of a debate, uh, uh, it was online, on the subject of annihilationism a while back, and I was literally horrified by the approach taken by one of the debaters, one Gene Cook from The Dividing Line, in my view, his opponent, a man defending the claim that the Bible teaches annihilationism, had quite simply bested him with arguments. Now, this man is not actually a Christian, but as a matter of textual interpretation, he had laid out a clearly understandable and testable case about what the Bible teaches. When I say testable, I mean anyone can go to the Bible and engage in the exegetical method and test this guy's arguments. And after that, after, in my opinion, this guy had quite simply defeated Gene Cook's arguments, Mr. Cook announced that because this man is not a Christian, his reasoning must simply be wrong. Now, I know that he thinks he has a biblical basis for saying that, but in fact he doesn't. But think about that just for a moment as an argument. The soundness of a person's argument about what the Bible teaches is just relative to whether or not that person is a Christian. Well, 
What about unbelieving folk like Bertrand Russell who argue that the Bible taught eternal torment? Does Russell now have to put up with, an, with inferior arguments from evangelicals because opposing arguments, in spite of their merits, come from a, a bunch of heathens like him? That's what's known as poisoning the well. It's a variety of the ad hominem fallacy, accepting or rejecting an argument because of who presents it rather than the content of the argument itself. You want to know what I think we should do in an exegetical disputes? Rip off the names, not literally, but rip off the names, mentally, from the title page of the book and just read the arguments. Are they good? If so, then accept them. If not, reject them. I don't care if you find out afterwards that the better argument was written by an atheist. If you think I'm wrong here, then let me ask you, do you really think that the Christian cause is helped when the world sees that you're willing to say that someone like Ray Comfort won a debate or that his work on the existence of God or the problem of evil is good scholarship and you're prepared to say those things just because he, like you, is a Christian? I hope not. The fact is, if we go easy on Christian scholars and grant them a greater degree of trust because we see them as on our side, then we are lowering the bar for them and just encouraging them to do badly. I do need to add a big caveat here. The fact is, in the subjects that interest me most, philosophy of religion, ethical theory, political philosophy, as well as theology and biblical studies, those are my favorite subjects, the scholars that I regard as the best are, in fact, Christians. So I'm absolutely not suggesting that we should be suspicious of them or show preference to non-religious thinkers as though they are more respectable or anything like that. And it may even turn out that your favorite scholars in every field are Christians. I don't know. It could happen. Uh, Francis Collins is indisputably, for example, one of the greatest experts in genetics in the world. That's just a fact. Peter van Inwagen is among the top philosophers of metaphysics. Alvin Plantinga and William Lane Craig, among other Christian thinkers, are quite obviously among the top philosophers of, relig of religion out there. Bill Craig also doubles as one of the bright lights in philosophy of time. Uh, depending on which aspects of history and sociology interest you, Rodney Stark could quite plausibly be your favourite on Western history. Now, I'm not well-versed enough in, in the who's who of every subject under the sun to offer candidates here for each of them, but... You could, in theory, have a favorite in each of those subjects who is a Christian. That's not the problem. The problem, I think, is that when in our minds we erect a genre of Christian scholar in these subjects, of course all scholars bring their assumptions to their trade, and it's true that in many cases if the scholar in question holds radically different assumptions from you, then you're going to find their reasoning and their conclusions just unacceptable. But, for example, to take the subject of general chemistry. There would be something very wrong if you passed by great names like uh, Linus Pauling or Mietek, I'm going to say this wrong, I'm sure, Jaroniek, and settled for less prestigious or scholarly work on the grounds that the latter was written by a Christian. I may be speaking out of turn because I don't actually know that Jaroniek is not a Christian, but you get the point. This moves on to the second point. Just as with music, when we make assumptions about the quality of scholarship based on whether or not it is overtly Christian, or when we set up in our minds a subculture of Christian scholarship, I think we miss out on some really good scholarship written by Christians and non-Christians. I say Christians and non-Christians because in fact there are Christians out there who are scholars and who do not write overtly Christian pieces of work. I don't know, maybe they're a mathematician or something. 
some of the most helpful writers in preparing my PhD thesis were not religious writers at all. Uh, Gerald Gauss, a person with whom I disagree fundamentally on some key issues, is a lucid expositor on various political philosophies. Michael Ruse, a person with whom I passionately disagree over the question of God, the existence of moral truth, and the meaning of life in general, is in fact a gifted scholar and writer on the philosophy of science and also on ethics, even though I think, especially in regard to the latter, that he's just wrong. How impoverished my own education would have been had I regarded Christian scholarship as the source of all knowledge on all things scholarly. Non-Christian listeners might find it incredible that I should even have to point this out, but believe me when I tell you, there truly is a culture out there that regards a Christian bookstore as the best place to learn about philosophy, history, and even science. That's a mistake. Thirdly, we miss the fact, when we do this, when we set up this subculture of Christian scholarship, we miss the fact that the pursuit of knowledge and the promotion of understanding is not an ability that is limited to those within the Christian faith, but is a gift that God has given humanity. In short, there is good stuff outside of the church. It really is glorifying to God when a non-Christian physicist, for example, discovers special relativity, whether it's the version proposed by Einstein or that of Lorentz. Let me put it another way. Back in the second century, Justin Martyr, a famous Christian, one of the church fathers, said, and correctly so, he said this of all the wisdom of all the philosophers of all times, and I quote, well actually I quote the English translation, whatever things were rightly said among all men are the property of us Christians. End quote. Christianity is not simply a subset of world thought. If we see the world from a Christian perspective, there is truth. Among all statements that make up the truth, there are things like the earth orbits the sun. There are twelve semitones in an octave. White light can be refracted into all the colors of the rainbow. Julius Caesar ruled over the Roman Empire. God will forgive your sins and give you eternal life if you confess your sins and trust the saving work of Christ. God raised Jesus from the dead, and so forth. Now, the first few that I mentioned aren't godless truths, you know, the ones about science and history. They're just truth, just like the latter statements about Jesus. This is something I might have said little about when discussing presuppositional apologetics in a previous episode, but the fact is most people... Even people who ostensibly reject belief in God nonetheless reason and think about the world in such a way that involves drawing on what you might call religious presuppositions. That there is a causal order to the universe, that we can do inductive science, or that there are moral truths. It's all God's truth about reality. It's just that when it comes to acknowledging God or the truth of the gospel, a lot of people, in contrast to the way they live their lives in general, begin to deviate from the truth. Do you see what I'm getting at? But the fact that they deviate from God's truth when it comes to the New Testament portrayal of Jesus, for example, doesn't mean that they're deviating from God's truth when it comes to molecular biology, astronomy, or philosophy of time, engineering, electronics, physics, etc. Don't divide knowledge up into Christian and non-Christian. They are dysfunctional knowers because there are some really important things that they don't know. But then when it comes to simply knowing things, 
we Christians are pretty dysfunctional knowers too, at least I am, because there are plenty of things that I don't know. When an atheist who is a brilliant astronomer or a biologist presents God's truth to me in the field of astronomy or biology, it is no less God's truth than the truth that God accepts and forgive me because of my trust in him. Albeit, I think, much less important truth. That is, the scientific ones. Their brains, their intellects, their other gifts, like stars and scenery, glorify God. But what I'm saying applies equally to Christians whose work is not overtly theological. You don't expect, for example, Christian builders to just build chapels and cathedrals. You don't expect Christian gardeners to do nothing but make topiaries of the cross and famous Bible characters or something silly like that. Uh, Likewise, you don't expect... Or rather, why would you expect Christians with intellectual gifts using them to only engage in work that speaks directly about God? Good scholarship, then, is just scholarship that's really good. It's praiseworthy because it obtains excellence in the pursuit of truth. Overtly, Christian scholarship can be bad, really bad scholarship. Have you ever read, I don't know, something by John Walvoord or Answers in Genesis? Answers in Genesis is a prime example, and never expect an apology from me for saying that if that offends you. That's just tough luck. Christians in all fields of scholarship obviously have a unique motivation to obtain excellence over and above the motivation that many have, namely to glorify God, but never confuse the religious fervor of a scholar with scholarly rigor itself. My last example, Christian versus non-Christian people. In a way, this is the pinnacle of the episode, although the truth is most of the idea that I want to get across has already been gotten across already, hopefully, if I've been successful. And all of it really applies here by analogy as well. But of course, people are more important than songs and books and papers and so forth. On a subject where even the most friendly of audiences could easily misunderstand me, let me, as so many times before, offer a big, clear disclaimer. I am not a universalist. I do not believe that all roads lead to God, and so ultimately it makes no difference whether a person gets there by trusting Christ or some other way. So let's not go down that road at all. That's not my view. What I am doing is rejecting the view that Christianity provides an alternative community. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Christianity definitely provides an alternative to other belief systems and other ways of life that exist in our communities. And sure, it does provide a visible community, a family that is the church. It also points to the proper, that is, fitting future of humanity, resurrection, restoration to fellowship with God and eternal life. But it is not and never should be an alternative community, that is, an alternative to living in the world of other human beings. As Christians... We believe in what the postmodernists have called a meta-narrative. That's just a new name for an old thing. That just means that we believe in a big story. We see reality, all of history, with one unfolding account that ties it all together. God made humanity. Humanity is at odds with God. God sent his son into the world to redeem us and to bring us back to him. I mean, that's... That's the the heart and soul of it. Oh, you can add future things too. God will also restore all of creation at some point and is in the process of doing so now. As believers in objective truth, 
we think that this is not just true for us Christians. Whether everyone else realizes it or not, it's true for everyone. It's just true. It's what's really real. This is the way the world of brute facts really is. People who don't go to our churches and worship God as we do may be mistaken about the way things really are. Tragically so. But they're not aliens. According to this big meta-narrative thing that we believe, they are exactly what we are. As human beings with a common problem, we're all in this together. In the sense that they hold a different worldview than I do, sure, there's a sense in which they see the world through different eyes, metaphorically speaking. But in a literal, straightforward sense, they see what you and I see. They see a broken world that needs solutions. They know that there are so many things that need to be put right in exactly the same way that we see it. They, just like I, need to be put in touch with the source of our life and the only hope that this world really has. They, like I, are God's creatures, made as part of nature by God, made to work properly, made to function correctly when they are in fellowship with nature's maker. Think of it this way. We're not morphed into something superhuman when we become Christians. In a way, we just become more human, directed back towards what we as a people were meant to be. Just as all good music glorifies God, whether it's overtly Christian or not, and just as good scholarship glorifies God, whether it's overtly Christian or not, because it reflects the gifts that God has given to all people, good people glorify God, whether they're Christian or not. Now, I'm not, of course, abandoning the idea that we're all sinners, so no one's really good in that full and perfect sense. But there just are good things in the character of people in this world. For example, have you ever caught yourself, maybe even felt guilty about it, have you ever caught yourself thinking about a person you know, I have, and others have told me that they've done the same thing, thinking, you know, what a wonderful person. He or she would make a really great Christian. Have you ever found yourself thinking that? Now, of course, the error in that thinking is, is, is that it imagines that a Christian, being a Christian, is a matter of being a good or virtuous, likable person. It's not. It's a matter of faith in the grace of God, but that's another matter. The point is, if you really must think of people who aren't Christians in a collective way, think of them as dysfunctional Christians. I'm trying to think of useful examples that might get to the heart of what I'm trying to get across here. Here's an idea that might strike might strike some people as a little bit strange if you if you know me and know that I'm a Christian, especially some of my fellow conservative Christians. Think of it this way. Well, think of this as an example that illustrates the point. God doesn't only hear it when Christians pray. Now, does that, does that strike you as a little bit weird? God is omniscient. He knows everything that goes on. And this is about as close to evangelism as I'm ever likely to get. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17 that all human creatures are are God's offspring in some sense. It's proper and natural and fitting and normal for all of his offspring to pray to him and to trust him. What is the point of appealing to people to pray and ask God for God to make himself known to them if he can't hear them or doesn't listen when they pray? The Bible says, read through the first couple of chapters of Romans, I think I mentioned these earlier, that All people at a basic level know that God is there, but they err because they do not acknowledge him or give him the glory that he deserves, being God. If you aren't a Christian, you're listening to this, and you have this perception that praying is something done by Christians in some 
sort of crowd activity that makes them different. Think of it this way. They're getting back to their roots as normal, natural, properly functioning people. And they're not just our roots, they're yours as well. When we as Christians call you to become a Christian, as Christians do from time to time, you know, Christians will be Christians after all, even if in an occasionally embarrassing way, feel free to forget the Christian label if it really bugs you. But personally, I think it'll grow on you. Just see it in terms of them calling you to get back on track as a human being and doing what's actually good for you. Now, this is kind of dissolving into a bit of a rant, or at least it, it, it feels this way. So I'll wind things up there. As I said at the outset, this episode is a bit of a different one for me. Next time, and I'll try and make the next episode come sooner than this one did, I'll be getting back to subjects that fit in a little bit more naturally with the podcast. I haven't made my mind up exactly what the next podcast episode will be about, but at the moment I'm thinking that I might do something on the mind-body problem from a philosophical and theological standpoint. In fact, you know what? Let's make a decision right now. I'll be back with episode 26 on the mind-body problem, where we look at what, if anything, is the soul, is there a detachable thing called a mind, or is the mind something generated by the brain, or, as Bill Hasker suggests, is it both? What are the implications for Christian theology of either view, and what, if anything, does Scripture, does the Bible have to say about this? So that's all for this episode. I hope, now that I've got it off my chest, I hope you found it somewhat interesting and useful. I hope you think about it. But for now, join me next time, but for now, that's all for now. (laughs) That was really awkward. This is Glenn Peoples signing off another episode of... Shut up to my little friend!